I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show and podcast where readers meet writers. And as always, it's good to have you listening. One of Paramount's most intriguing hits from 2023 was a glossy star-studded series about a special CIA team led by women who target and take down terrorists. What does the word Marine mean to you? I don't know. Then why are we talking? Why are you here? I was being hunted and I I pushed through these doors and a Marine was there and he protected me. Lioness is mostly fiction, but if you've seen the show, you saw it was women, played by Zoe Saldana, Nicole Kidman, and Laisla de Oliveira, running the covert operations. That's notable to journalist and author Liza Mundy, who has just published a book about women in the CIA, and asks in her author's note, what resemblance does reality bear to Hollywood's flock of fierce female spies? Not much for many years, as you'll learn in our conversation. It took decades to change the CIA. And the women Mundy writes about were remarkably brave and brilliant, determined and patient. Liza Mundy's new book is titled The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA. And she joins us from Washington, D.C. Okay, I love this book. I've been eager to talk to you. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. You write, from scarcely a mention in the historical record to seemingly ubiquity, much has changed on the surface. And we're going to go into detail about how that change came about. But I wonder if you'd say the CIA is really truly transformed today. How much of the old stubborn patriarchy still exists there? Well, I think it's a lot better than it, it used to be, which is a pretty low bar. Uh, there's, there's still, I mean, there's still challenges for women, certainly at the agency, uh, particularly in overseas postings, because uh, it's, it's tough, lonely, hard, sometimes dangerous work. And uh, for women who have families, uh, to have an overseas career, an overseas clandestine career, uh, mm-hmm. is still maybe a little bit more challenging than for men. But women bring also unique strengths to spycraft and to special operations work and to counterterrorism. Uh, and so certainly uh, the place has changed a lot. And and it's recognized now at the CIA that women have beh- been behind many of the successes of the agency, um, most notably the team of targeters who located the compound where Osama bin Laden was hiding out. Uh, and who helped guide the Navy SEAL team into that compound was strikingly female. And the uh, people who had the most confidence that bin Laden was indeed in the compound were largely the female targeters who were very close to the ground um, and, and had, had done the, <clears throat> the difficult analytic work uh, to, and, and were quite confident in their assessment. And, and that's recognized now at the agency. Um, and, and other female teams, the, the female sleuths, uh, the counterintelligence officers who pinpointed the traitor Aldrich Ames mm-hmm. in the 1990s, this was also a very uh, gimlet-eyed, relentless team of, of women who did painstaking work to identify who was giving up the names of, of Soviet assets uh, in the Soviet Union at the time. So, uh, so this has become part of the, of the history of the agency now. And, and uh, so it is a different place than it was in the 60s, 70s, uh, and even the 1990s. A lot to follow up on there, and we will. But I, I still want to ask you about, you know, when Donald, Tr- Donald Trump put Gina Haspel in charge of the CIA in 2018, the first woman director, Karen DeLacy, a retired operations officer, wrote this in the Washington Post. A female nominee to run the agency doesn't change the reality that an inclusion crisis exists in the clandestine cadre of the CIA. Fewer women applying to be operations officers few women in important leadership positions, and continuing harassment of and discrimination against women. I want to go back to something you just said about still fewer women even applying to go into the clandestine side of operations. Is that because the CIA 
hasn't really figured out or cared to figure out how to support women who may bring, you know, different qualities and different needs along with, as you said, tradecraft to that role. Is that why fewer women are doing that? Yeah, I think it's still a challenge uh, for the agency to figure out how to support women. Um, Again, a lot of these overseas postings, you know, it's not all Paris and London. Uh, it's it's lonely postings in in Africa, in the Middle East, in uh, South Asia, and in in dangerous places in Pakistan, in Nigeria, and uh, doing counterterrorism work, which is you know spy work is a lot more dangerous now than it was in the Cold War era. Uh, and, and it's it's changed in the in the era of terrorism and counterterrorism, and so, it, you know, and there are still countries where it may seem to be harder for women to operate. Um, Saudi Arabia is is a tough posting for women, but um, but as as I said, women do bring enormous resilience and and talents and in some cases unique gifts to these postings and I've certainly interviewed and feature in my book women who have served recently in in mm-hmm. some of these very difficult places who have performed remarkably well uh, a woman who helped apprehend um, Miramal Kanzi who opened fire and killed CIA employees uh, back in the 1990s in Northern Virginia. And there was a relentless manhunt to find him and apprehend him. And I interviewed one of the women who was critical to his being found and apprehended um, when he was hiding out in Pakistan. And uh, I, I interviewed another woman who served in very difficult postings in Africa and among her other achievements, she was instrumental in bringing home some of the Nigerian schoolgirls who had been mm-hmm. kidnapped by Boko Haram. And that, to me, was important, um, not only because um, this woman, Molly Chambers, was just an absolute delight to interview. It's very brave, very funny, uh, very resourceful. Um, but I think people have the idea that a lot of work in this counterterrorism era involves manhunting, you know, tracking down terrorists like bin Laden and others and taking them out. Uh, But in her case, she was girl hunting in this, uh, you know, uh, very um, mounting some very ingenious operations to to bring home these these young girls who were getting educated and and getting, you know, a, a Western education and which was one of the reasons that they were they were kidnapped and, and taken away. So, uh, yes, it is. There's still an inclusion challenge for sure. And I, I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't gainsay an actual CIA officer who says that there's an inclusion crisis. Um, I, I don't. I don't know about the crisis part, but it's certainly still a challenge. I mean, Gina Haspel made a big difference, I think, at the agency, yeah. and she she mm-hmm. installed women in um, in many, if not most, of the top spots at the agency. Uh, and I so so I think her tenure uh, was important for women to gain more access to what they call the seventh floor to the top policy making and decision making offices. Uh, at the agency. You spend a lot of time chronicling what it was like for women before there was this sisterhood. And and they ended up, some of these women we'll talk about, being key to building the sisterhood, the sense of collegiality and support. But, you know, I'm thinking of Lisa Harper. She, I think, referred to herself as a leper at one point because no one would help her. Her career was languishing. And at the time that she came into the CIA and was ambitious for, you know, difficult and challenging assignments, there really was no sisterhood to turn to at that point, right? Right. Lisa Harper is just, to me, a wonderful character and a wonderful person. And she was recruited out of Brown University in 1966, uh, the height of the Cold War, and really experienced the 
the post-war um, environment of the of the CIA. I mean, if you've seen Mad Men or any of these uh, dramas illustrating the the post-war, you know, toxic masculinity <laughs> type uh, environment in which women had to make their way, uh, you'll you'll get a sense of. Of, of what it was like, except that this also involved national security and, you know, our, uh, the CIA for, for decades, including now, is, you know, one of the most powerful agencies in the world. And CIA station chiefs posted around the world were often more powerful even than U.S. ambassadors in, the, in these countries. So, you know, a very, in terms of projecting American power and executing presidential policy, uh, the CIA was, uh, you know, the premier implementer of, of, of policy and, and, and collector of, of information and intelligence. And Lisa, incredibly talented undergraduate at Brown, which had been a fertile recruiting ground for the CIA and, and its predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services back in World War II. Uh, the Ivy League traditionally was where the OSS and then the CIA looked for its top officers and its recruits. Um, and, and when she was recruited, this was so typical of the post-war environment. She was promised, yes, you can be a clandestine officer. You can be uh, using your gifts and talents abroad in these uh, spy missions, collecting intelligence on behalf of the United States. She had grown up abroad, the daughter of a diplomat. She knew how to blend into foreign cultures. She was uh, fluent in many languages, just ideal for being being a spy overseas. Uh, and, they, and so they they, they dangled this uh, this offer to her, but when she accepted the job and was brought in, they um, they tried to route her into a desk job, pushing paper, uh, collecting reports, and this was the traditional female track because the CIA needed women; it needed people to 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 manage the paper. What what people often don't realize is that when spies are operating overseas and collecting information, clandestine information that other governments don't want our government to have, all this stuff gets passed back to headquarters. And for decades and decades, it was... um it was filed on three by five cards, you know, index cards, and and it was women who manned the archives and 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 passed along the reports and edited them, and that's what they wanted Lisa to do, and she pushed back and she said, no, that's you know, that's important important job, but it's not the job that I envision myself doing, and and they they absolutely shut her down when she challenged the system that way and said, no, I want to be in a different lane, I want to be in the men's lane. Uh, she encountered just infuriating barriers. I think it's sometimes difficult for readers to to read those sections about what she went oh, through because she was so absolutely. persistent. Um, but what? So what you said about the network? Because this is important. The CIA for decades during the Cold War, but even now, is a very networky place. And for a person's career to advance, they have to have a mentor. They have to be part of a network. It's it's a very clubby place. And so from the get-go, of course, the Ivy League was, um, was one network, what university you had been to, whether or not you had served in the OSS. Um, uh, a number of the early uh, CIA directors had served in the OSS, Alan Dulles, um, William Colby, and that was a very important network. There was also a Greek-American network, and so these mm-hmm. guys helped each other, and they advanced each other's careers, and they called it career management. You know, they would say, okay, well, so-and-so is, is going to be finishing up as station chief in London next year, so so-and-so will take over. So, you know, they... they 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 go they were in back rooms and they were they were deciding who was going to be head of what and and so the women didn't have that and and because they had been channeled into these roles as secretaries or archivists uh and and so when lisa entered in she didn't have anybody to bring her along to to look out for her and it's a very undermining competitive elitist place where there is a limited number of top, of top spots and you have you know you have to watch your back not only when you're working abroad from the adversary but from your colleagues as well yes. and she didn't have a protector she didn't have a mentor or a guider and she was instrumental in beginning to build a genuine sisterhood so Liza do I also remember right that Lisa is one of the uh, CIA early CIA women who got married 
And it, yes. and once she was married, they felt like, well, she's made her choice and now she's going to tail around after her husband. And she worked that, but it took a while to figure out how to do that. Do I remember this right? Absolutely. And that is so important. And that's why in the book, I end up spending a lot of time in this uh, in the, again, it's these decades into the 1990s uh, that that women officers. Uh, so you're a female clandestine officer at the agency. Your your career is to go abroad and and to collect information on behalf of the United States undercover. It's it, it requires a lot of training, six months of training, and so the government sinks a lot of money into your training. But but if a woman officer got married either to an outsider or to a colleague, and it was often to a colleague because this is a very closed kind of society, Mm -hmm. she was made to resign. It wasn't just that she was the trailing spouse, you know, in a lesser position. She had to resign. And this was true in the Foreign Service as well for female diplomatic officers. Uh, and, and you know, we hear this now and we think, what? Like, how could that, how could that be? But it was just accepted that, um, that, that a woman was going to not be as ambitious, that she wouldn't get the sort of home support she would need to essentially, if you're a spy, you you're doing two two jobs. You're overseas with a cover job, often as a U.S. diplomat, and then you have your real job, which is spying, which you're doing at nights and weekends. And it was just assumed that women's families wouldn't follow them abroad if they had families, and that women wouldn't have the time or the support. And this lingering expectation that lasted for a long time, that when a woman got married, her responsibility was to her husband and to her children, and that it was certainly not the job of the agency to make it feasible for her in any in any way to have an overseas career. And so Lisa Harper had to resign when she got married and she had not expected this. Uh and 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 she had received her her clandestine training um by by pushing back and saying, you know, I want to be a spy overseas. So they they sent her to training and uh but then when she did get married, they forced her to resign. So then she follows her spy husband overseas and she's just under she's a housewife as far as the world is concerned and the agency is concerned she's no longer on a career track she's not getting promotions but the CIA like the state department also expected wives to help and so the station where they were posted in Europe started um, sending her out on collection operations, particularly ones that nobody else wanted. Uh, when they had to meet with an asset, uh, which is what mm, when the when a CIA officer persuades a foreign national to pass information uh, to him or her, uh, that person's called an asset, and that and the asset is a foreign national who is now committing treason by passing information to to the CIA. So they would send Lisa out if it's raining, if it's the middle of the night, if it's cold, if this if it's a creep, particularly creepy person, they would they would use her free labor as a wife and she was so eager to do this work that she put up with that uh, for about 10 years before she was able to fight for the right to be reinstated as a um, the the name of the position is case officer in her own right as a clandestine officer in her own right so so she really lived and exemplifies the many challenges that that women uh, ran into and that particularly married women ran into. Mm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're, you are listening to a conversation with Liza Mundy about her new book, The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA, along with introducing us to a lot of these women who early on went through what, what Liza has just described that Lisa Harper went through. We learn how women took on pretty risky assignments, had to fight the discrimination inside the CIA to push through the the bureaucracy there. And then what happened as they started to create this network of women who were determined to succeed that Liza calls the sisterhood? This is a good moment to talk, to come back to something you said right at the beginning about how women would bring different tradecraft and, and different skills to Um, to covert work. And I think it's a good moment to talk about Heidi August. I've got to say, this just floored me. She, until she began recruiting women as foreign assets, 
<laughs> I mean, the CIA basically ignored how valuable all of these women who possessed a lot of intelligence information could be. What They were not bringing women who were foreign assets in. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the, oh the 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 qualities that both Heidi and Lisa demonstrate is that um is that being female can be a great advantage in 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 spy work overseas, particularly in countries with male-dominated cultures, because the best kind of spy is a spy who is underestimated, a spy who blends in, who nobody pays attention to. They think you're unimportant. And so in in many countries, the assumption was that women were unimportant. And so the KGB, for example, didn't expect uh, women to be spying in Moscow. And so they wouldn't surveil uh, the women who were over there. And and Heidi is another great example. And she and Lisa Harper are, are friends and, and, and allies and helped create this sisterhood. Heidi was um, was recruited out of college and, and she was made to start as a clerk, really sort of the lowest rung at the at the CIA when her male classmates were being recruited as case officers, as clandestine officers and spies. So it took Heidi, uh, uh, it took her 10 years working as a clerk in dangerous places around the world to to switch tracks and join the clandestine service. And she knew how much information she as a clerk had access to in the CIA mm-hmm. stations where she worked she she operated the coding machine she knew you know, she 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 filed all the classified information she had access to everything in the stations where she works. So when she's on her first posting as a case officer in Geneva at the UN headquarters there, she looks around the room and she sees all these women who are secretaries, who are clerks, and and often who are pissed off at how they are being treated in their own countries and their officers. And and one of the important um one of the important truths that that uh, clandestine officers have to understand is well, what causes somebody to betray their own country to pass information, and and money is one reason, uh, uh, ideology is another, but revenge is also a very powerful motivation. If a person is pissed off at at their boss or their the president of their country, that they will pass information. I mean that that is an inducement, and so Heidi realized that all these women uh, from all these countries meeting in Geneva. All these female secretaries and clerks were likely pissed off that they had access to everything in their offices. And so she began uh, what's called, you know, cultivating them as as potential assets. And uh, I mean, there's a great operation uh, in which she she pinpoints uh, a woman who has access to something that the CIA has been trying to get for years and years. And she cooks up an ingenious way to strike to meet this woman. It's called a bump. It's called bumping somebody when you've identified a potential asset and you want to engineer a meeting what what looks like a casual meeting uh, it's called bumping and so she engineers a, a creative way to bump this woman and develop a friendship and then ultimately to tell the woman who she is who she really is and and what she wants the woman to do which is to steal a piece of technology from from her office and pass it to the CIA so they can make a copy of it and, and the woman uh, does and that's right yeah and the woman does yeah because yeah. she trusts Heidi uh because Heidi's been patient uh and and straight and you know honest with her and um and because she's very pissed off at how she's being treated uh in her own office made basically made to sort of Serve tea to the men in her office and and uh, and frustrated with her lowly status and so um, and and Heidi's Heidi's station chief had said to her when she when she said to him I w- I'm going to target women he said you know well okay you know if you want your career to end before it's really even begun <laughs> you know be be my guest and uh, and she uh, and and one of the things that the CIA did and and I think still does is is polygraph assets to bring up a, a polygrapher in to make sure that this asset really is who they say they are and and is a reasonably stable person and when the polygrapher came uh, to interview this potential asset um, he said wow I've I've never I've never interviewed a female asset before. And Heidi said, well, <laughs> welcome to the world. <laughs> Both Heidi and Lisa demonstrated that uh, the, the CIA was is almost unbelievably sexist for decades and decades. And, and various reports were done periodically about why women weren't getting advanced. And, and the top 
male officers just never hesitated to articulate these biases against women, you know, that women won't be taken seriously abroad, that if they're approaching females as assets, those those women don't have access to any important information. And what Heidi and Lisa and others of that generation proved is that is that being underestimated is an advantage, that the adversary is not expecting Heidi August to be um, succeeding so remarkably well uh, or or to be a spy at all. And so they, you know, it's kind of like a jujitsu using their perceived weakness as a profound strength in these Mm -hmm. overseas postings. Just so our, our listeners realize what you're saying about how overt and accepted this discrimination was. You write about a pamphlet that circulates in in the early 70s through the CIA, and it, it blatantly states not too many women are suited for the way of life of a field case officer. I mean, that was like accepted wisdom inside the CIA. Yeah, and you see these, these um, beliefs emerge over and over. As women start to challenge this and they start to file EEOC complaints, uh, an important complaint in the late 1970s that gets filed. And as I said, the male, the male officers who are deciding people's careers just have no reluctance, no hesitant to, hesitancy to share their, their biases about women. And, and the, also the idea that, um, it's a it's a very difficult moment when a CIA case officer is asking someone to become an asset. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a kind of a deal making moment, and it's a, it's a big ask. And there was the belief that women couldn't make that ask. It, it's the same thing that was operating in in law firms on Wall Street. You know, that women couldn't be rainmakers. They couldn't bring in big clients, and uh, and so the and and just as you say, there was there was. There was a pamphlet, then there were affidavits collected in the late 1970s in which these sentiments were freely shared. Um, and, and also that, you know, that a woman's going to quit the minute she gets married. That was widely believed. And even into the mid 1990s, when a couple of major sexual discrimination lawsuits were, were settled uh, on behalf of the women. Uh, the, these these kinds of sentiments and biases. It, it wasn't even unconscious bias, as we would now call it. It was right. conscious, blatant bias that women just can't do this kind of work. Uh, that they, they you know that they belong in the archives. They belong in human resources. They belong back at headquarters pushing paper. Uh, for all these reasons, they can't operate. In, the, in these, these were like to be a CIA case officer, and there aren't that that many. It's a small elite group, and it's like the fighter pilot position. Mm. Uh, it, it's the most prestigious position, and it, it's highly sought after. You do receive six months of training, and uh, and and for decades and decades, uh, the men and men of, you know, certain, uh, you had to be heterosexual, you know, you had to be white for a long time, you preferably from an elite background, you know, it wasn't like all men were welcomed in, most men weren't. Uh, But it was such an elite cadre, they worked very hard to, uh, to preserve and perpetuate these biases, that, you know, that it took women like Heidi and Lisa who showed, no, this is really valuable information that we can obtain at a period of time when we are in an existential struggle with our chief adversary, the Soviet Union. And, you know, just like in World War II, you want all hands on deck. You want to you want to draw from your complete talent pool. Why wouldn't you? Uh, and it took women like Lisa and Heidi sometimes working together uh, because Lisa gave Heidi some important assistance early in Heidi's career. And that's how a sisterhood began to be born. And and and. And it should be said also that Gina Haspel was a beneficiary of this sisterhood, Mm, Uh, that Heidi had a a close friend, a woman named Mary Margaret Graham, another case officer, and they made a decision at a certain point. We have battled our way into, uh, you know, reasonably influential positions, and we are going to reach down and we are going to mentor other women. We're going to bring them along. We're going to create a sisterhood. And one of the women that Mary Margaret Graham uh, helped usher along... very talented and gifted woman was Lisa was was sorry Gina Haspel. So it it 
one of the reasons that my book became such a sort of extensive history is because it was a it was a slow process. It took decades, but it was mm-hmm. a really, really important process of women learning how to work together and beginning to work together in in a, an environment that was treacherous and, you know, fr- from the outside, but also from the inside. You're listening to a conversation with Liza Mundy, and we're talking about her new book, The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA. And I'm Carrie Miller. It sounds like you you had a, a somewhat old school way of tracking down some of the women who had worked at the CIA. I, I thought I read somewhere that you placed notices in magazines that some of these women read. Is that well, right? They're, well, they're, these are, um, I mean, I think it's, I guess, old school. I mean, I think of it's sort of a standard way of, of um, it, these are online publications that people get oh, now. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's an, you know, association, I always, uh, AFIO, uh, Association of Former Intelligence Officers that has ah. a, a mm-hmm. online newsletter that goes out. So I placed a, a notice there and got some responses. And then there is a, there's an e- there are a lot of, um, of email chains of, of retired CIA officers uh, and there's one that um, that is uh, women who were members of the senior intelligence service that, with the highest, m- most elite group of, of officers. And they have an email uh, chain that they specifically refer to themselves as the sisterhood, the SIS derhood. And I also, <laughs> a, a member of that, you know, placed a, an email, sent an email around on my behalf uh, saying, there, you know, that I was working on a book and wanted to speak to uh, to women who had had worked at the agency really in any capacity at any time uh and because i guess the thing that surprised me when i was starting out this research i i really didn't know how many people would be how would be willing to talk to me or yeah. uh, or able to talk to me and and i got many 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 more responses than i had anticipated of women who were very eager to talk about their experiences for obvious reasons i mean they had they had worked so hard to build their own to build careers in this um in adverse environment and and also because their careers were so fascinating the operations that they were part of you know the ones that they could talk about to me uh were just fascinating and this is why i mean this is why it makes for great drama like the one that you described at the beginning um and it's also why it's also why a lot of retired clandestine officers have a screenplay and you know in a drawer of their desk or you know an unfinished memoir or novel even if they can't necessarily publish it on their own it's just you know, it's an extraordinary double life that clandestine mm. officers lead, and they find themselves in all sorts of bizarre and unlikely scenarios. Uh, and it's it's such rich material that you know it's it's hard to not want to share it. I want to talk about the mole hunt for Aldrich Ames. Yeah, um, CIA case officers. He was a, a case officer who did some serious damage to the CIA by spying for Russia. Um, it was a team of women who warned CIA leaders about Ames. They were ignored for a long time, weren't they? Yes, they were. And and these women, um, Jean Vertifoy, Sandy Grimes, they had they all had their own uh, stories of being recruited by the CIA and then just put into these um, really frustratingly. Uh, uh, niche or marginalized positions, just not giving the career advancement that they wanted and that they should have gotten. And for various reasons, uh, they found themselves in what's called counterintelligence, which is a a part of the CIA that is devoted to making sure that the agency doesn't get penetrated by another spy service. And uh, and that's, again, that's not the most prestigious position. It's not the fighter pilot um, tip of the spear kind of job where you're out there collecting information. You're 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 having to do careful work to make sure that an adversary spy service doesn't have what's called a mole inside the CIA. And at a certain point in the, um, I think it was even the late 1980s, the uh, the what's called Russia House, the mm. part of the CIA that operates in Moscow, um, to to develop 
uh, assets in in the Soviet Union. Uh, very very difficult work. Very difficult to get these assets and very difficult to communicate with them because the KGB would just constantly surveil known or suspected CIA officers. So really hard won, really important assets were being killed by the KGB. Uh, their covers had been blown that they were passing information to the CIA. And the realization dawned that within the CIA, there must be somebody who knew the names of these assets, who was giving the KGB the names, and, and they were being executed. And it was just devastating, a devastating realization. And so painstakingly, many, many, you know, potential candidates were considered uh, of, of who it might be. And because you sort of have to be willing to consider anybody, uh, that anybody could be doing it within the agency. Um, but this this team of women created this hundreds and hundreds of page long Microsoft Word document, you know, kind of at the beginning of, of, of search, the search function, um, tracking Aldrich James and his, uh, his reckless behavior. Um, I mean, he was a, a legacy officer. His dad was in the CIA. And that's, you know, almost for a man that was an almost automatic entree into the CIA in a certain era. His behavior was, um, was very reckless. He was a womanizer. Uh, he was an alcoholic, uh, and and th- these were common behaviors anyway in the spy corps. But he carried it to an extreme. But he had been benefited from just being his old his old boy connections. Uh, but this team of women, like they didn't care about that, and they began tracking his spending, uh, tracking. His contact with, he had sort of legitimate Soviet contacts and meetings with Soviets as a CIA officer, but they, they began looking at his bank records and reali- realizing when deposits were made into his bank account and that he had, that that coincided with meetings he had had with, with Soviet contacts. Uh, and so they put together this meticulous, um, documentation of, of, a paper trail, which took years. And then the FBI got involved because it's the FBI is the agency that actually makes arrests. The CIA does not make arrests. And uh, and the FBI was conducting its own investigation. So for about a year, uh, it ignored the findings of these women. And, and the women had had to battle, you know, within the CIA to, to get this uh, recognized. And then they had to now battle the FBI to get it recognized. And when, uh, when Ames was finally apprehended, there was the predictable conflict between the CIA and the FBI as to who was going to uh, get credit for for the arrest and and the women just got shunted out of of even that part of the process to the point where they got hauled before a select committee of congress um a private session and jean vertifoy they were asked what took you so long and jean (laughs) vertifoy who led the team was asked by a member of congress what made you think you could lead a counterintelligence operation (laughs) so they were criticized for being slow when in fact they had been you know, held up uh, all along the way and had persisted for years to identify the Uh, the culprit. It's maddening. (laughs) I I just want to say that it seems like in that, in that, as Ames became, I think I remember this from your book, Ames becomes aware that there may be a team (laughs) of women who are, and he doesn't even feel threatened, right? Right. He has access more than that. I mean, he has access to parts of Russia House. Um, The CIA is a very compartmented operation, and they were literally what were called backroom operations. You know, a small team of people would be working in a vault, a sealed office, and nobody knew what they were working on. So he he didn't have access to everything, but he was walking the corridors. Some of these women were friends with him and his wife. And, mm-hmm. and, and so he would pass them in the hallway. And when he found out they were conducting, uh, an investigation into the potential mole, he, he literally explained to them how to conduct a <laughs> counterintelligence operation. Oh, uh, and, and I, we would today, in today's parlance, we would say he mansplained to the women <laughs> who would ultimately pinpoint him, you know, how, how to do their job. And, and that's not uncommon behavior, um, of moles, of, of, 
people working in a spy uh, organization or, or an organization like the NSA, which is also, you know, periodically you have an internal trader. And, and it is a common pattern for this person to sort of casually walk into certain workspaces and sort of look on other desks and things like that um, to, uh, to see what's going on. And, mm. that, and that is what he was doing. For listeners, anyone who's really interested in kind of going down a rabbit hole about Ames, there are some fascinating interviews with him. I think they're the George Washington University series of interviews. And so Liza's book kind of inspired me to read some of the the interviews with Aldrich Ames, which are kind of mind-blowing. So Liza, um, I want to talk about bin Laden Mm-hmm. Because your your chapters on how essential women analysts became in tracking terrorists are, are really interesting. And I thought I'd read a bit from the paragraph on how you describe how these these teams of analysts, many of them women, would painstakingly put together like little scraps of information. Yes. So yes. from Liza's book, terrorist collection was chaos. It consisted of fragments bank transactions, plane tickets, incorporation documents, snatches of intercepted conversations. A terrorist analyst had to figure out every code name and whether the same fighter had lots of code names or whether the same code name had lots of fighters using it. And yet again, Liza, after 9-11, when the women are trying to keep the focus on al-Qaeda and away from Saddam Hussein... They were ignored. And, of course, the Bush administration was hell-bent on going into Iraq. So what is – give us a sense of the arc between the time that the women start to realize they're they're identifying terrorists, some of this may lead them to bin Laden, and when this this analysis is recognized – Yes. And so one important thing to understand about the CIA is that there are these um, there are these members of the clandestine service, these fighter pilots, these spies who operate overseas collecting information. And that's the that's the clandestine service. And then there is another equally important branch of the CIA, the analytic branch. And these are the people who sit mostly back at headquarters, although although also oversees some, and they take all this information, all this collected intelligence, and they make sense of it, and they write reports for the national security community and for the president of the United States, because the CIA was created so that we wouldn't have another Pearl Harbor, we, that we wouldn't have another fatal, terrible surprise that launches us into a war. And that's the, that's the end point of the CIA, is not just to collect information, but to analyze it to write up reports and to disseminate it to the people who need to know. So so there's this parallel group of women, analysts, back at headquarters who have been similarly fighting for uh, for uh, access to the analytic core for decades, uh, who have been assigned in some cases to the least less desirable desks, who in who prove that while it can be an advantage for a spy overseas to be underestimated and unnoticed, like Heidi August or Silisa Harper overseas, if you are an analyst in a government bureaucracy back at headquarters, it is not an advantage to be underestimated and ignored. And so this mm-hmm. was a parallel group of women who were fighting very hard because they had perceived and begun to notice a new threat that was coming up in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, as early as 1993, one of these women, Gina Bennett, wrote the first real strategic warning about the threat posed by, by al-Qaeda. Uh, and mm-hmm. nobody at that point even really knew what this group of fighters was called. And by a financier named Osama bin Laden. So in the early to mid-1990s, there was a group of female analysts who were really beginning to pay attention to this new threat that was rising around the world. It wasn't a country. It wasn't a government. It didn't have a military. Uh, it didn't have, uh, you know, an army. Uh, it didn't have uniforms. Uh, it was it was individuals who were bent on destroying the United States, uh, who were very... Um, anti-Western and, 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 and 
ruthless, uh, who were conducting what they called jihad against the any infidel country. And so these are the women who began pioneering a new kind of intelligence collection and anal- and analysis. Just just as you read, thank you that that paragraph um, of of ways to uh, to to understand who this what this entity was and to get attention in the building uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 the CIA is like okay uh we've won you know the the chief adversary is is vanished and and it it becomes a period in Washington when congress is saying like do we even still need a CIA uh the soviet union's collapsed like yay uh the world has been safe made safe for democracy uh we'd like our peace dividend you know we don't even need to fund uh these agencies so much these intelligence agencies and so in this um in this environment of retrenchment when different Desk when different agencies are fighting each other for funding, and at the CIA, different desks and accounts are fighting each other for funding. You know, the Soviet desk doesn't want to the doesn't want to give up. Russia, the Russia House doesn't want to give up its funding. Russia still exists, and these people, you know, are experts in Russia. So again, it's it's a it's a group of young female, mostly female officers who have been again kind of relegated to niche uh, desk like. Afghanistan or uh, Indonesia, and and they they begin to track communications between fighters and leaders and and ultimately members of Al Qaeda, uh, and then they have to write reports that will get noticed, and they have to persuade their managers to let them write these reports and. And this is important. It may sound like a kind of a nerdy detail, but, you know, if I'm a journalist at the Washington Post or a book author, you know, I'm writing under my own name and I might mm-hmm. have to persuade my, my one editor uh, <laughs> or, or, a, or a couple of editors. You know, this is a newsworthy topic. Let me, let me publish this story. But at the CIA, everything is a corporate product for the most part. It's unsigned and, and everybody has to agree. So if you're tracking a terrorist who seems to be in, an African country, but communicating with somebody else in Indonesia, and you want to write a report about why this this shadowy network is 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 important and something to watch out for. You have to go to the Indonesia desk and the Africa desk and all these different anybody with a stake in it. And you have to persuade them to agree. It's called chopping. You have to get them to chop on what you want to write, and then you have to get your manager to agree, and then you have to get the editors of the president's daily brief to agree that this is a real threat that belongs, you know, that should be presented to the president in a briefing. So you got to be able to work that. Your bureaucracy and you got to have credibility and you got to have standing. And if you are a young 30-something woman who's been assigned to this particular desk because it's not important, that's that's a tough job uh, to do. You know, that's that's a, a tough challenge of a different sort. And and so there was a very determined group of women who spent years trying to get attention within the building. And once they did finally get attention from George Tenet and other officers on the seventh floor, it was then uh, yet another challenge to get the attention of the first the Clinton administration and then the incoming Bush administration uh, in you know at the at the beginning of 2001 uh, when when a new administration was taking over. And um, and so that that was a, a struggle that uh, a largely female team engaged in for, you know, for seven or eight years, even as they were pioneering this new, uh, this this new form of of spycraft and an analysis called targeting, targeting mm. individuals. And and when you uh, you know when you were reading aloud from uh, or when you're talking about lioness, uh, that many of many of the women who appear now in these contemporary spy dramas, that's what they are. They're targeters. Yeah. Uh, in <laughs> Zero right. Dark Thirty, in Zero Dark Thirty, the central character, she's a targeter. They become immersed in the everything that's known about this individual person and also their contacts and who they communicate with. Uh, and that is a skill that actually women at the CIA had been developing a muscle that they had been developing since it was created in 1947, because that was a job that women 
、uh, were put into even back in the days of the Cold War to develop this in, in deep, intense biographical information、uh, and and knowledge about. Uh, you know, at one time it was Soviet.、Uh, it was it was KGB officers and and everything that was known about Soviet leaders, about、uh, about Soviet spies. There would be a woman at the agency who knew everything about that person, and、mm-hmm. and so these targeters carried that skill set over into counterterrorism. They were building that capability before nine eleven, struggling to be heard, and then it was after nine eleven when yes, there was this. Sh- Prolonged, terrible distraction of the Iraq War, and the rise of ISIS, and the splintering of all these other terrorist groups like Boko Haram, and、uh, and 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 then all the all the terrorists that they had tracked down in Afghanistan flee Afghanistan and disperse all over the world, and some of them are in Iraq. In Iraq, and there are new leaders arising, and these women continue to hone the ability to track terrorists,、uh, to use new software,、uh, new data tools. You know, really powerful new tools. You don't have to plug names into a Microsoft Word document anymore and use a search function. Just way more powerful databases. Uh, and in order to keep track of of where people are and who's communicating with whom,、um, in an era of you know drone uh, operations and uh, and and apprehensions of terrorists,、uh, they continue to to develop this ability to target people. One other paragraph here that I think、um, you've captured what what propelled. The doggedness of these, again, mostly women analysts who were hunting for Bin Laden. <clears throat> You're right. The women had a special vantage point and motivation. They were mothers, many of them, and daughters. They had fought for careers in public service. They were up against a psychopath for whom women and children were little more than projections of his own narcissistic ego. Some stayed in place for more than a decade more to get him. It's it's incredible, and and can they talk about that today?、Uh, yes, yes, they they do.、Okay. I mean, a, a number of them have retired now, and and I also had、uh, access to I, I interviews. I, I I conducted interviews with with officers who are still at the CIA,、uh, okay. you know, through their public affairs office, who put me in touch with them. And in some case, in in a, just a couple cases, I had to use cover names. Uh, for for women who are still in the clandestine service,、um, but but th- because there is a gender component to this, because in fighting Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups, I mean these are terribly terribly misogynist groups who have、uh, you know who would who would relegate women to the Stone Age if、yes. they could, and so in a sense、uh, these these women analysts knew that they represented everything that Al Qaeda wanted to to destroy, right? I mean they in some ways they represented the West and everything that. That was perceived to be wrong with the West by these terrorists, and they had to read communications written by these terrorists about what they wanted to do to civilians, and specifically what they wanted to do to women.、Uh, and so there, there was a a a very specific, I think, gender component to this, an extra incentive to these women to want to to fight this particular adversary, and also the willingness of terrorists to、um, to protect themselves using、uh, using women and children as human shields, and and the and and the willingness of terrorists to to take civilian lives. Uh, in in mounting their operations, all of these were instead of course, of course there are are there are men fighting these these battles as well, and and men、mm. allies and 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 working in the offices too. But I think the women did have a, a, a special motivation. Liza, I love the book, and thanks so much for for the for the、uh, conversation and pulling out some of these fantastic details. Thank you. Thank you so much for for having me. It's a it's they're remarkable women, and and it was a, a pleasure to to interview them and、um, and to, to an honor to、uh, to try and tell their story. Liza Mundy's book is titled "The Sisterhood: The Secret History of Women at the CIA."